0: Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience.
1: Tony Tran, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Uh, thanks
0: for having me. Pleasure to be on.
1: Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. We, I have to mention, we connected through Mike Dimaggio, uh, and since you're you're a Chicagoan. Uh, in Chicago, it's Dimaggio, but in other parts of the country, it's Dimaggio. I've always said Dimaggio, but I guess in Chicago, it's Dimaggio. Yeah, I've, I've always
0: known him as Dimaggio. Um,
1: so it's yeah, it's it's interesting
0: how they uh, pronounce things differently in different parts of the country. But must be the yeah. Chicago accent here. Yeah, uh, I
1: I don't detect your your uh, Chicago accent.
0: Uh, no, I don't. I don't have one. I'm not. You know, um, I'm not of that typical. You know uh, Chicago, uh, Polish or Italian descent that has that, you know, kind of the bear accent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How do you and Mike know each other?
0: So we, uh, we went to the university of Illinois together. Uh, we were in the same fraternity. I think he was a year ahead of me or two years ahead of me. Um, uh, but we've kind of stayed in touch, uh, mostly through other common friends in the fraternity. Uh, we, we go on this annual ski trip uh, every year I make it about every other year, but Mike goes every year. And then outside of that, we kind of occasionally see each other,
1: um, you know, social and that sort of thing. Does Mike uh, enjoy Miller Lite on those ski trips?
0: Uh, yeah, a little too much, I think. Um, we've tried to, like, upgrade his uh, his beverage of choice, but he's uh, he's a stickler for, for Miller
1: Lite. He's, he's loyal to that brand, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sure we call him uh, Miller Mike um,
1: when we're out there. Yeah. Nice. Uh, all right. So, Tony, I when Mike told me about you, I was like, I, I can't believe this story. Uh, I, it's certainly nothing like anything I've experienced in my life. And you and I had chatted uh, before today. You have some recollection of 1975. Um, and so I, I'd love to explore for a bit uh, what your memories are before your family was worried about uh, needing to effectively evacuate where you you live you have memories before the the fear started
0: uh yeah i mean they're very um uh they're not many because i was about four years old four and a half years old when when we fled to the u.s uh but the memories i do have are you know kind of being in our our house um we um from a a coastal town just uh, east of saigon so I, i remember being in that house um You know, I remember playing uh, with my friends. I remember being at school. Uh, We started school pretty early there, Um, so I remember that. Um, There's an interesting story where I remember uh, we we were Catholic, so I went to a Catholic school, and I just remember uh, being disciplined by the nuns because I was fooling around a little too much. Uh, So those those are strong memories. but yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember a whole lot. I just remember uh, being around the house, being with my friends. Um, uh, I remember our family dog for some reason. We had a German shepherd. Um, mm. That's a pretty strong memory. Uh, and I do recall kind of uh, something related to the war in the sense I remember seeing military vehicles driving by in the street. Um, that's another clear memory I have. And then really the, the bulk of the other memories are during that time period where we fled and and then kind of, uh, you know, uh, our experience through that.
1: Yeah, uh, the Americans effectively left South Vietnam in 73 with the Paris Peace Accords, but there were some, certainly some State Department folks that were left behind in the American Embassy and that sort of thing. But I I can't imagine you have memories of American presence in the country, uh, at least where you were. Uh,
0: me, me personally, no. Um, I, I know my, my, my parents, when I talked to them, uh, you know, about it, uh, they they certainly did. There there was definitely a lot of uh, American influence and in, in the culture and the society, um, you know, the way it was set up. And, um, you know, there was definitely American music, you know, a lot of the pop culture. Um, I, I still remember a lot of the, the, the songs from that era because of that. because um, I think my I, I had older siblings who, you know, we're certainly into music. I remember. I remember that. And I, I don't honestly know if that memory of music is from the or kind of just after that from my siblings still listening to
1: that. But it's, uh
0: definitely reminds me of that period every time I hear music from that era. Uh,
1: what about French influence? Was there much French influence you remember or your older siblings or parents told you about?
0: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my, my parents are Catholic because of that, because uh, of the French colonial rule. I mean, they, they brought, uh, there were a lot of uh, French um, uh, Catholic missionaries and monks that, that were uh, in the country. And so certainly we got our family religion from that. Um, there was, uh, you know, my um, my father was educated by the French um, system. So, you know, there's, there's that influence. Uh, and certainly the culinary influence i mean if if you've ever had vietnamese food you're probably of of uh but there's definitely a lot of influence from from the french uh you know and, including coffee and you know the vietnamese sandwiches um just the ingredients we use food.
1: Uh, i'm a huge fan of uh pho is yeah. that french influence or is that purely vietnamese
0: uh, you know i honestly know, um, I, I would imagine it's it's a hybrid um, because you know there's a lot of ingredients that are local uh, to uh, to Vietnam, um, but you know there's there's so many variations in each family's stuff, right? They they do they do it uh, you know there's there's a family uh, recipe for for it because there's so many variations in the ingredients you can put in
1: there. Very cool. I, I I'm seriously a fan. I, I eat pho once or twice a week. I don't I don't know what my problem is, but I've been doing. <laughs> Yeah,
0: I, uh, I I do that. And even when I travel, like I the first one of the first things I try to do is find a, a good Vietnamese restaurant in the city on that. So I think I've hit every Vietnamese restaurant across Europe. So
1: every place I've been. Yeah, I think they're everywhere, right? They're certainly yeah. in, in lots of places in America.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, because of, of the war and the diaspora, you know, like the Vietnamese people have kind of spread. Um all over the world and I actually have a friend who's from Poland and she told me she grew up with some Vietnamese friends in Poland Mm. of all places so uh yeah it was just kind of interesting that you know we made it that far north of
1: you know northern Europe so out of uh your two parents who's talked more about the experience in 74 and 75 your mom or your dad um
0: so they uh they don't talk about it a lot. You kind of have to ask them about it, and and
1: um, did,
0: uh, you know, one thing I should tell you is that my father passed away in '93, oh, so wow. uh, I, I I haven't had him um, to talk to in quite some time. But um, it's interesting because growing up, one of my fondest memories is really talking to my dad. He just had stories from, um, about his you know his time in Vietnam, and this is you know definitely pre-war, but just like his story about growing up in the village. Um, you know the things that he did. Um, you know how he um, how he survived and that sort of thing. But I, I they were just entertaining too. He was just a funny guy. Like and I don't know to this day if the story's true, but he told uh, a story about one of his friends um, in the village in Vietnam who had a pet tiger who he taught how to smoke a pipe. So I, I just remember the story and just finding it so funny. And, but as I got older, I'm like, man, was that story really true? Like I can't verify. But it's just you know stories like that, and um, and I just appreciated it because it provided me a connection to like my home country, um, hearing these stories from my dad. Uh, and then, you know, after he passed away, I got a little more curious about just our family history and the history of Vietnam and, and the war and all that. Um, because growing up in America, was just like I was essentially an American, uh, I came here so. So I was a little more uh, caught up in trying to fit in with my friends at school and, you know, and sports and girls and that sort of thing. And so it wasn't until I kind of got into college that I was a little more curious about uh, my family history. Um, so after that is really when I kind of started talking to my mom and my other siblings. Um, and and now it's kind of, you know, my mom's getting a little older now, um, She's three. So I'm just trying to interview her and I'm actually recording her on video to document it and have it around. Uh, for the kids and the family to kind of listen to her story, um, but I've been asking her a lot of things um, about it and just her feelings on it. It's just uh, it's really interesting to, to hear her um, talk about it.
1: Yeah, at a high level, how would she describe uh, the buildup of the North Vietnamese Army uh, traveling south with clear intent to, uh, or at least the the interpretation of their intent was they were there to to take over the the entire country, right? Yeah,
0: um, you know one one thing about her is, um, you know, when she she recounts these things, they're all kind of facts. There isn't a lot of opinion about like this. But well, one thing that's very clear is just um, the 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 fear and uncertainty having to be uprooted involuntarily so many times throughout her life, mm. uh, and then and then it's just more of like, oh well, this is this is what we had to do, as opposed to you know, complaining about it or, you know, wishing things were different. She just kind of tells the story like, hey, this is what happened. Here's what we had to do to survive. Um, And, you know, I I think I um, mentioned to you before the podcast, like she's gone her and my father went through a lot, right? Because there was the French colonial rule, uh, you know, the Japanese occupation during World War II. um, And they they were both originally from the north. And so when the the French were defeated, uh, defeated by the Viet Cong, uh, and the country was divided, the North became cash and they fled South. Um, yeah. And so they had to set up shop again, but essentially every time they had to move, you know, they started with, you know, right, they left a uh, local business that was very helpful, um, it was basically repairing a cars and taught himself how to fix a car and eventually it became his profession. And, he got so good that he was actually teaching other people. So he had classes there uh, for people and he was teaching all these students how to fix cars. And once they got that up to that level of success, they had to move again. And Mm. then again, had to start all over again in the U S. And so, you know, my, my story about coming to the U S is really their story, right? I, I was just along for the ride. It's really a story of their um, resilience and courage um, to be constantly uprooted and still, you know become successful and provide for the family
1: so the, the day that you ended up uh fleeing can you can you walk me through what you remember of that day
0: yeah so um you know most of this is 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 recounting you know what, what i know from family but um I, I do remember some of the some of the events of that day um But essentially what happened was, um, like you said, you know, the war essentially ended with the Paris, uh, Accords in 1903. And that I think gave the U.S. like a window of uh, two years to withdraw all their personnel from the South. And so in doing so, you know, the South Vietnamese government wasn't really, uh, set up to protect itself and was overwhelmed by the communists. And so that very last day, 8 30th, 1975, was a day all the, we're, we're going to have to leave. Um, and uh, when they did that, there was this chaos in, in the city. I, I, I think at the time, a lot of people, they just knew, hey, this is a possibility that the communists are going to take. Eventually, they didn't realize like how quickly it was going to happen as that day unfolded. I think it became very clear that Saigon's going to fall very quickly. And so there was just chaos. And everyone was just trying out of the country, and by any means they could. Um, so at the time, um, two of the were able to uh, get out via um, the airport, uh, which you know a lot of people weren't able to do. Um, my 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 father, my mother, uh, along with uh, my two older sisters, me, and my my little brother who was probably six months at the time. Um, basically got into a fishing boat. So we we had a neighbor who had a fishing boat and my father asked him to use it because uh, our neighbor decided he wasn't going to leave. He was going to stay with his his wife and kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he basically said, you can take the boat. And so we, we took the boat and headed out to sea with really no plans. Mm-hmm. It was basically just to get away. And so um, I, I remember personally sitting in this little fishing boat, rocking up and down in the sea. And um, you know, at the time, the U.S. Navy was there off the coast, kind of supporting the U.S. troops and personnel who were withdrawing. And they saw the chaos, and they, I think, they were nice enough to, you know, send uh, boats out to kind of rescue as many people as they could. And when I look at the documentaries and the footage from that day, it kind of strikes me how lucky we were, because it was just mass chaos. I mean, there are boats full of hundreds of people, and we were in this little boat, and the Coast Guard. Um, Sorry, the Navy sent a Coast Guard cutter over uh, out and just happened to pick us up and brought us to the aircraft carrier. Um, and if, if you watch the documentaries, that aircraft carrier where, uh, you know, these Huey helicopters are landing and people are, you know, jumping off and then they're just pushing the helicopters in the ocean. Um, they, they did that because no one was flying back and they just needed to make room on a carrier for more helicopters to come in. Uh, but that aircraft carrier was the one that we were on. And, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's kind of surreal when I watch a documentary and I see that footage to, to think I was on that, that carrier. Um, because it just seems like you're watching a movie, but you were actually on that, on that boat some, somewhere. Um, and as a child, like I, I, that's another like strong memory is like, I remember, you know, over the the cable, you know, the, the cable railings of that aircraft are looking into the ocean.
1: Like that's another strong memory I had from that day. Uh, and I guess it was a memory that stayed with you just because it was so unusual for any experience you had had prior to that, right? Uh,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely a chaotic day. You know, um, it, it just, uh, uh, I, I don't fully remember my feelings on that day, but I'm sure there was certainly a lot of uh, anxiety and uncertainty because, you know, I certainly felt it. And, and just uh, the chaos of the day kind of, uh, that vibe and that energy probably got
1: to me. Um, do you have any sense of out of every hundred South Vietnamese that were trying to flee to, to a, a better place in, in theory, how many were able to actually successfully flee?
0: I, I, I don't have a statistic. I know it, was, it wasn't a, uh, overwhelming percentage, um, because there's just so many people, um, I know a lot of people weren't, weren't picked up by the, by the U.S. because their capacity was only so limited, right? Um,
1: you know, I, I think a lot of
0: them may have ended up in uh, neighboring countries. Um, I, I do know that after the fall of Saigon, um, there were a lot of Vietnamese who, who were still trying to flee, uh, of, of which my, um, my brother was one of those. And I, I should back up, right? So out of our family, uh, my parents, um and the you know there's seven children six of us made it out that day mm-hmm. uh, my older brother was in the south vietnamese army so he was deployed somewhere and we didn't know where he was gonna um, where he was and so he ended up being left behind and five years later he was one of those boat people that you read about um you know in the late 70s early 80s i just got on a, a boat trying to flee vietnam Um, And he made it, he and his, uh, he married uh, while he was there and had a child and he and his family were able to flee to Singapore. Um, But the statistic I remember reading about those boat people is that only one in 20 boats made it. So, yeah, he's definitely lucky. Um, But, you know, going back to that day and another thing that I think is miraculous is that my sisters, uh, two of my sisters went via airplane. Uh, The rest of us went. Uh, via boat, and we ended up in different refugee camps. So, you know, this is way, you know, pre-internet. So there's no way to know, like, if, if the rest of our family made it. Um, so they they ended up at Camp Pendleton in uh, California. We ended up uh, in Guam at a refugee camp, and so every day, you know, they told me they would just check the list uh, that would be posted about people who made it, and um, you know they would just continually have to go back and check to see, Hey, you know, did the rest of our family make it out? And uh, <laughs> I think it took us some time to realize that we, we did make it. Um, so yeah, it's uh it's pretty miraculous. And I think we're, we're definitely very fortunate that our, our entire family made it up and weren't separated.
1: Uh, Unbelievable. I mean, the odds have to be one in thousands, I would think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then, you Know the, the story of my brother too is also pretty miraculous. Um, because you know, one in 20 boats made it, but he tells uh the story about how you know, being out on the, uh, the open sea, they were in a big canoe with a uh, um, an out motor board, and that that broke down a couple times, and he had to figure out how to fix it. Um, you know, uh, but that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that you know, these are patrolled by Thai pirates, and so they were raided a couple of times and somehow
1: managed to survive that too um so, yeah. it sounds like your mom or your older brother or even in any of your immediate family members could all put together a movie and it would be un- unbelievably uh well received because it's so unusual
0: uh, yeah it's uh it's, it's pretty incredible um sometimes you think we have a guardian angel you know Someone looking out over us, and uh, I think I think we just definitely count our blessings uh, every day that uh, that we're able to
1: make it. All right, so you, l- let's get the seven siblings straight. Was your the brother that was in the South Vietnamese army? Was he the oldest?
0: He's the second
1: oldest, mm-hmm. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. and then uh, I have uh, four older sisters,
1: uh, and then I'm number six, and so my little brother's number seven. So it was one boy, then four girls, then two boys. Uh, Was well,
0: uh, the uh, one of the sisters? The Sorry, one,
1: one sister, then a brother, then yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, the two sisters that flew out of the airport were they uh, the oldest and the third oldest?
0: They were the oldest and the fourth oldest. Wow!
1: And, and uh, they just happened to be us, together.
0: Uh, yeah, and along with my uh, my oldest sister, had at the time. Who was the same age as my little brother. That's that's how big the the, the span is, the age differences in our family. But yeah, the, the three of them were able to make it out um, by airplane.
1: Yeah, that's uh it's always fun when you have an uncle about your age. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's uh it's a funny story because when we came here to the US, the two of them were in the same grade. And so when they go to school, all their friends would be like, oh, hey, are you guys twins? And my niece would say, no, that's my uncle. And everyone would be like, <laughs> what, what are you talking about?
1: <laughs> I, I'm very curious what your brother, the the second oldest or the oldest boy, what his experience was from 75 until he uh, was able to get to a better place. Uh,
0: yeah, I've um, you know, I've talked to him a bit about it. Um, I want to say in, in 2007, we actually went back to Vietnam. It um, was my first trip back. Um, and, you know, I went with him, my younger brother, um, and then my, my nephew and niece as well. Um, but it was, it was really interesting for me to see that because he left when he was older. So he obviously had a lot of friends and a lot of high school friends. And so when we went to our hometown, he caught up with all of them, um, and it was kind of kind of fun to see. I, I, you know, at the hotel, we hosted a party and had all of them come all in and, and just uh, so they, they could enjoy you know, each other's company. But he's still really good friends with all of them. Um, and one of the cool things was he he has all these old pictures. And there's this old picture of him with like three of his buddies sitting on a beach in our hometown. And it's this black and white picture. And so when we were hanging out, the four of them were at the beach. And I happened to snap a candid picture of it. And so it was great to kind of show them this picture side by side later. But yeah, yeah. he... He, he definitely has uh you know, he, he's recounted some stories there obviously because he was in the military, um, he and their friends were kind of um uh, put into a re education camp, if you will. Um, where they were just, you know, communist propaganda and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I haven't gone into detail with him about like that whole experience and what happened afterwards. You know, eventually he got out and um he kind of went back to our house in our hometown and one of our neighbors uh, was still there and uh, of course the daughter of the neighbor was there too and that's how he that's how he met his wife so they uh, they got married uh, between 75 and eight had a child
1: uh, a son uh, and then in 1980 you know they fled. Uh, yeah I imagine the re education thing I, I- it's hard to fathom what that must have been like.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you hear hear stories about it, but um, you know, I don't I don't know um, firsthand or secondhand from my brother, you know,
1: sort of things that happened, other than just you know the communist propaganda. But I'm sure there are terrible things that went on.
0: As well.
1: So you were uh, with some of your family at basically a what a refugee holding location yeah
0: yeah so that wasn't guam um so once once we are on the carrier um, you know according to my mom we had to in the middle of the night in the high seas had to cross a you know a rope bridge between these different boats and carriers in the middle of the night um, and we basically did that three or four times um, so we transferred ships that many times by rope, and then we at yeah, it's just you know one of those cable bridges that they have. Oh, out there. okay,
1: yeah, yeah. You know
0: what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still. Yeah, see, right, exactly, out on the high seas. Um, but yeah, we ended up in a a camp they set up in on Guam, and um, that's another memory I have is like being in this big um, army tent, and uh, we basically had to share it with a few other families. And I remember being in there um, uh, with these other families, um, and then I also. Um, you know, my mom tells me that uh, at the end of every day, she would send me and my sister out um, to to get rice that the soldiers were giving out to the refugees. And she sent us because she knew that the soldiers would give rice to the kids first. So she she was a smart lady, right? And so she would send out, you know, a four-year-old and eight-year-old um, to wait for the truck to come by that was giving out rice, and uh, you know, just to
1: make sure we got our our portion. She knew better than to send your dad. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um,
0: so from from there, um, you know, we we got into the U.S. because um, we had a sponsor. My mom had a cousin who was married to an American uh, serviceman and uh, they sponsored us uh, as well as my two sisters. So we were able to eventually um, enter the U.S. Um, so we we flew from Guam to Hawaii. Uh, and then to the continental U.S. So uh, f- funny story is I've never been to Hawaii. When people ask, hey, have you been to Hawaii? I have to think, I'm like, oh, yes, I have. It was just a layover way to the U.S. Um, but we, uh, we ended up in Akron, Ohio. So a lot of people think, oh, did you end up in California? Um, but my uh, my mom's cousin and her husband uh,
1: lived in Akron. And so the very nice and friendly people of Akron were the people that welcomed us into the U.S. Did you grow up in Akron or Chicago?
0: Well, we, we lived for a year with my, my mom's cousin. So, I mean, it was a crowded house because <laughs> there was my parents uh, and uh, six 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 of the kids plus my uh, aunt's cousin or husband. And they had, um, let's see, at the time, probably two children. They, they eventually had four. Um, but, yeah, we, we spent a year there. And then. I'm not entirely sure why we picked Chicago, but after a year, um, my father decided to move us to Chicago. I think it was because there was more um, work opportunity, and we ended up in a suburb of Chicago called Wheaton,
1: out in the West suburbs. Yeah, I mean, the the climate differences between South Vietnam and Chicago, Illinois, I mean, they they had to be shocking. Yeah, yeah.
0: So we, uh, I think three years after moving to Chicago was the blue seventy nine. So there's a, there's a picture of me and my brother in our little uh, snowsuits, a mountain of snow that's like 10 feet high. Um, yeah.
1: yeah,
0: that's definitely an adjustment for, for our family. But me as a kid, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't know any better.
1: <laughs> yeah, kid, kids <laughs> are resilient family. because they don't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what are your memories of uh, being a kid in Chicago?
0: Uh, you know so I, I grew up in the suburbs it was a predominantly kind of a uh, white upper middle class so um, I, I remember that there weren't a whole lot of other kids like me uh, so it's mostly you know um, uh, white kids and uh, and you know the school we went to was um, was nice uh, it, it was kind of kind of funny I have another story about just about the cultural differences uh, so this is the late 70s um, and, you know, I lived walking distance to our grade school, but my father would drive me in the morning and because he had to work early, he would drop me off at the school and leave me in the parking lot, uh, an hour before the school opened. Mm. So as a eight year old, I would, you know, seven, yeah, seven, eight year old, I would be sitting in the parking lot of the school for an hour. And then when it opened, I'd go in. And one day the principal came in and saw me sitting in the parking lot, is was just like, who are you? Like, what are you doing here? And so the next day, a note a note came home. Uh, and basically, after that, my my dad somehow arranged with our neighbors who had uh, kids that went to school there too to have uh, that family drive me <laughs> to school.
1: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Were you ever uh, in the parking lot for an hour in the winter?
0: Uh, I don't remember the winter. I, I remember sitting out there in the fall. Uh, and at the time, there was uh, construction going on across the street for a new subdivision. I remember watching, just spending an hour sitting there watching the construction workers like build the houses. Uh, but I mean, uh, you know, where, where we came from, there was, you know, you, you let, uh, in Vietnam, the kids were independent. And, I, and your, the parents would leave, leave the kids unattended sometimes. And so it was, it was definitely a difference coming to the U.S. where, yeah, you can't do that.
1: Uh, you can't do that if you're a school official. They can't allow for that. But you, most American yeah. kids back then were still fairly independent. Just you couldn't be independent around teachers or school administrators. Right, right. Uh, do you uh, remember experiencing any sort of prejudice because you were Vietnamese, and and most of the kids around you were not?
0: You know, I um, I think I was lucky in the sense that I, I didn't get that. Uh, that much where i grew up um but i know that my sisters have these stories of like when they first arrived in the u.s they would be walking the streets and people would be calling them gooks and you know that sort of um so they they definitely um uh, experienced some of that me as a child if i did i, I don't remember um you know and, and growing growing up you know um there might be some some kids who might maybe made fun of the way you looked or the way you dressed and you know what you ate and that sort of thing but there wasn't anything too serious
1: it was just like kids being stupid kids were your kid oh i'm sorry were your parents uh mindful and this is your perspective uh, not necessarily your what your parents may have told you were they trying to get you to uh be american in sort of a forced way or was it more hey we are vietnamese we're going to maintain our culture we just happen to be in america
0: yeah you know our 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 family or at least the way my parents are is we don't ever have those conversations they just kind of um they they kind of they're their role models in the way they they behave they do um so we never had that that conversation they Vietnamese the needs at home right and so then um, when I went out to play with my friends, they never said, oh, you know, don't forget your abilities, just go play with your friends. Um, so in that sense, I never had that kind of um, strong conflict where parents told me to be one way and then I had to be a, a different way. But, it, but at home, I obviously was aware we were Vietnamese because of the things we didn't. Um, so, so there are certainly times, especially as I got old, you know, when you become a teenager, you definitely want to fit in more with your friends and start to identify more with your friends, and push a little bit from your family, right? Like, like every teenager does. And so for me, I was just trying to reconcile or explain to my parents, like, "Well, this is why I want to go to the social or this thing," you know. Like they couldn't understand that, um, uh, you know, and that that sort of thing. Or why would I want parachute pants? <laughs> Th- know, those were things.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're
0: like why, why do you want those? Like you know, these 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 clothes where you get from Kmart are just fine, you know. Yeah. And, um, so those those are the things that uh, you know I remember, but there was never a conversation like oh, Hey, don't forget your, your Vietnamese, um, because that, that was just they just acted like they weren't Vietnamese, and so um, you know I just kind of inherently knew that.
1: Yeah, and I know. I'm backtracking a little bit. I know you were only four uh, in '75, but you were in a Catholic school, so it sounds like you were speaking Vietnamese at home, but you were learning French at school.
0: Uh, no, um, they they weren't teaching French there. Um,
1: it was still
0: it was still Vietnamese because all all the nuns were Vietnamese. Okay, um, but that definitely that was you know fell under kind of the, the French French influence. Um, but yeah, that um, I I think <laughs> sometimes I, I joke around that if we we are still in Vietnam, I might not have gone to school because it just you know how uh, back in that time, you know, Catholic nuns were just Fairly brutal in their discipline, and so uh, I did not. I clearly remember not enjoying school. So,
1: yeah, I, I I'm not Catholic. I'm I'm married to a Catholic. We raised our kids Catholic, uh, and I've certainly heard stories about Catholic nuns. I don't know why they were that way. Did the church want them to be that way?
0: I you know I I don't know. Um, I think it's a discipline thing, and uh, you know the punishment comes along with. With that, you know, it's
1: Catholic guilt isn't enough, then perhaps punishment needs too be involved, too. Yeah, with with guilt comes punishment, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So uh besides going to school, uh doing normal things you would do around the house, did you have interest or hobbies uh or involved in sports sort of thing when you were like twelve to eighteen?
0: Um I mean I I uh you know I, I was I was fairly active as a kid and so um i played a lot of uh, starting in junior high so i ran track um i tried to play basketball didn't make the team um so i ended up doing a lot of intramural stuff uh you know like basketball or just anything that just involved running around um i I definitely enjoyed and then high school i was on the football team and the track team for a couple years um but yeah football was, was the sport of choice and uh that was something else my parents didn't quite understand. It was just like, why do you want to just getting hurt? Like, <laughs> it's a dangerous sport. Um, and they, they definitely talked me out of it. Um, but it's, it was something I, I really, I really loved. Something. Of course, uh, 85 was my uh, freshman year with the Bears, right? And so, um, definitely, definitely love football because
1: of that. F- finest um, year in Chicago, I imagine.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then of course uh you know basketball has always been a I'm, i've always been a big fan but it's too short to play um so you know i kind of played it recreationally uh, and i still do to, today
1: so. oh that's great that, that's awesome and what then, position did you play in football
0: uh that's that's a funny one too so i i started out as uh you know typical running back uh, defensive back um and then uh sophomore year one of my coaches saw how quick I was. So he decided to put me on the defensive line as as nose guard and just let me shoot the gap. And so sophomore year I played nose guard and I was pretty good at it because the other kids weren't as quick as me. So I'd be able to like, you know, blitz the hole and get to the quarterback. Uh, They tried to do that with me uh, on the varsity team. And at that point those guys got bigger and faster. So that I moved back to strong safety at that point.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. JV teams and even some varsity teams at some smaller schools, you'll see either giant kids playing those guards or kids that weigh, like, 135. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we uh, we were, unfortunately, the smallest school on our conference.
1: Um, mm. So we played
0: with the big Naperville schools and you know, the other weekend schools. Um, and they were, you know, they were having tryouts for the football team, and they would have, like, an A, B, C, and D team. Oh, and, god. You know, have enough enrollment to like. If you wanted to play football, you're on the team. Like we didn't have like, you know,
1: tryouts. Wow, <laughs> So it, it's rough yeah. being the smallest school, and in, in, in yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: it definitely was uh, for our little that time. We uh,
1: we didn't have the best of records, <laughs> but you had fun. Yeah,
0: we we had fun, and you know, I've uh, I've got I still got great friends. Like high school, were it was a really fun fun period for me, um, but. Uh, um yeah it was, it was it was definitely fun, and um, you know, I think I am too just uh my friends like coming over to the house and enjoying our food and seeing the culture was, was a bit eye opening for them too. It was just like, hey, here's a family uh, from another country that doesn't eat just hot dog hamburgers, you know, um so um. I think that was a good experience for them, but they're all still like they're kind of family too now. Like, so when we have family events, we sometimes come over, um, you know, and everyone remembers them. So
1: No, it's it's great for the, for your friends to ha- have those experiences, right? Uh, make makes yeah. them a little more worldly, a little more understanding of uh, people that maybe didn't uh, grow up the same way they did at least culturally. Yeah. Yeah. And I,
0: I think looking back at it, you know, um, it's kind of uh, really amazing to think that it's been, 47 you know like it's uh but looking back at that that decade i don't recall like you know ethnic foods being very mainstream uh and now it's just like there's so much variety uh in, in our cuisine and in america and uh even you know culturally you know uh, being more aware of like global cultures and not just american culture
1: yeah it's it's nice to see how uh diverse the the typical experiences in most parts of the country
0: yeah
1: yeah uh all right so when you were thinking about going to college was college always going to be something you did
0: yeah i mean let's fairly expect uh i, I mean it was a typical asian family or work hard you know use your smart and, and, and in life um so yeah college was always kind of uh, expected um you know my, my older siblings, some of them came um, in their latter teen year, so, you know, they 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 basically went to junior college, um, and uh, my younger, the youngest sister, me and my little brother were the really the ones that kind of went through the the full educational system in the U.S., um, so it was, it was always kind of like, you know, expected that you go to college. Um, so, uh, I was always good at math and science, so I decided to go in, into engineering, and um, and at that point in my life, like I was telling you before, you know, I was really feeling uh, like I needed to get away from the family, like I, I wanted to get out on my own. And so I actually thought about going to like MIT or mm-hmm. out to Caltech in California, just to get as far away from home as possible. And my parents just didn't want me to go that far away. They actually wanted me to stay in our hometown of Wheaton and go to the junior college there and so as a compromise i said I, I would stay in state and that's why i ended up at illinois but you know i'm, I'm glad i did illinois at the time was a top five engineering school so it was a, a great education and again being being in the the fraternity house and meeting people like mike like i i saw great friends um from college through the fraternity experience and so um i definitely
1: uh definitely don't regret going there did you apply to other schools
0: I, I thought about it, um, but I, I knew my parents wouldn't let me go, so um, I ended up just applying to Illinois. Um, you know, sometimes I, I regret not not applying, seeing if I could get in, but, you know, life worked out well for me, so.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, no regrets, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty nice to be in the same state as a top five engineering program for a kid who wanted to be an engineer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, um, which engineering uh, did you study?
0: Uh, so I originally applied for aerospace engineering because my dream was to like design planes and spaceships, um, and uh, I ended up uh, not making it that program because it was just like so popular. Um, the the was uh, much higher bar. So I ended up uh, doing mechanical engineering, which is a fairly general engineering discipline that that could allow you to kind of do uh, into multiple engineering fields. But uh, growing up, I. I was like one of those computer kids. Like I had a Commodore 64 in junior high. I, I was in the computer lab junior high all the time, writing programs. And so um, I never thought to make it, um, but I always kind of like did it on the side for fun. And so uh, through college, I did some uh, internships um, with engineering firms and I quickly realized that, you know, engineering is fun. Um, you know, it's a little boring sometimes that a lot of people get to design um so uh, after college i tried nearing for six months and realized this isn't for me and my my older sister at the time had a uh, kind of um it consulting company in. she suggested i take a you know database class and um give the give kind of the consulting a go and so i, I ended up working uh with her and her company for several years and kind of launched my career in in, in it and
1: consulting so let's back up so my son is uh, an engineering student at virginia tech and he tells me that the two hardest disciplines are aerospace and computer science or computer engineering is what some school schools call it uh it sounds like the same was true uh back then
0: uh yeah for sure um There's definitely a lot that goes into aerospace engineering. And then, um, you know, computer engineering is just a different animal, but kind of uh, same process, right? You're taking rules, right? Like uh, aerospace engineering is taking rules of physics and applying them and trying to solve a a problem using those rules and and being creative in how you solve that problem using the the laws of physics. Uh, Computer engineering is different in the sense that it's the laws of, you know, um, how these transistors and and semiconductors work together and then you get into software engineering and that's a different set of rules right here's the the coding language and the logic and the rules of the language and how can you apply it to solve this problem and so i I think what attracted me to all those disciplines is the ability to be creative and to design solutions and so i think i was fortunate that i fell into this kind of a software engineering uh, field where i got to be creative and um, it was right before the internet took off. And so there was a lot of opportunities and a lot of problems to solve and lots of ways, lots of ways to be creative because now you have this medium called the internet, right. That, um, that you can design things for.
1: Yeah. I definitely want to explore your, your career, uh, as you, you effectively became an entrepreneur. So I'll ask you a few questions about that in a second. When, when you use the word creative, I tend not to think about engineering or math or science. I, I tend to think about liberal arts, in terms of education uh, and, and I've watched software engineers do their thing and they have to be extremely creative and they are constantly and consistently problem solving as they develop software. It's amazing to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah um, I mean I, I remember um, you know when, when I got my first computer in high school and college and you know things wouldn't always work or software updates didn't work, or some piece of hardware broke. Uh, you'd always have to find a creative ground. And that, that's where the creativity comes in. It's just like, okay, you to fix it this one way, but you hit a roadblock. So how can how else can you solve it? You have to backtrack and try a couple other things. But then you find a solution that might work here or, or did work over there, and then applied it this way, here worked. And so that's that's just a way of creatively taking them um, and putting them together to work. And, you know, I, I was always amazed that my father, yeah, you know, going back and then also my older brother because um, I, I call my older MacGyver because he, he was able to fix that outboard motor with probably band and a pencil, right? Yeah. And but their uh, that discipline of doing that with their hands is the same thing I'm doing with my uh and my fingers on a keyboard. Like it's just finding a problem and, and and coming up with a creative solution around it.
1: Um so the natural high that you experience from solving a problem, um, mm-hmm. in the way you're describing it, versus saying scoring a, a three pointer in, in, in basketball, can you compare the two things?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 being able to uh, overcome some obstacle and achieving some goal. But I mean, for me in my professional life, um, it was it was fun to like work with other people and come up with creative solutions, and then eventually. You know, these solutions really helped companies be successful. But for me, at the end of the day, we, our company was very focused on user experience. Um, meaning, it just because you have a solution doesn't mean like it's very useful or people mm. can figure out how to use it. And so we, we wanted to make things that were easy for people to, uh, you know, to figure out without help from other people um, or uh, be efficient in, in how they completed a task. And so, for me, what was more rewarding was like actually helping somebody, you know, be better at their job or be more efficient or you know making their life a little easier because they don't have to try to figure out how to use this application. And I'm sure, like, you, you probably don't get it as much now because user experience is such a
1: core,
0: um, core discipline in a lot of uh, a lot of companies that build these applications now. But prior to that, you probably remember going through applications and going like, how, how do I do this? Like, why do I have to fill this? You know, go through 10 screens to do this when it could be just one. Um, and it's kind of funny because me and my work friends, sometimes we can't help ourselves. Like we'll go out to dinner and we'll see like how a restaurant's set up and be like, Oh, this is totally inefficient. They should do this and that, and they should put this over here. And and so it's just part of our nature to try to improve things. Um, but for me, the rewarding experience is really being able to help like people, um, you know, have a better experience with, with this application.
1: No, I, I love the, uh, the empathy that's implied in, in what you're describing there. That's, that's great. Yeah. And actually every, everybody on earth, I wish uh, thought that way. The world would be a better place. <laughs> by the way, it sounds like every restaurant you and your friends go to, you could probably double their profit within uh, a couple of hours.
0: <laughs> it would, yeah, we could definitely make it more, more efficient, but, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I don't have it. I just want to go to Portillo's um, I, I, you're, you're not from here. The, the kind of hot dog uh, Italian beef place that, that, that's here in Chicago, they are popular in that. They have this efficient like process when you go through the drive through There's like people that you, you encounter in the drive through line, but you get your you get your Italian beef real quick um, instead of like waiting an
1: hour, you know? Yeah, they, they figured it out through, it sounds like a lot of uh, testing, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so when you were doing the IT consulting thing, what kind of problems were you solving typically? Uh,
0: they uh, they were either like business systems for internal users or um, kind of uh, consumer-themed applications. And it, it was all like processated, right? Like uh, on the consumer side, you know, if it was one of the big shows, like, okay, well, here's this customer who logged in. Um, they need to uh, you, you basically out all the different tasks that they need to do and you try to figure out a flow uh, and then a screen design to help them accomplish that task you know it could be you know sending money checking their accounts um, applying for a loan you know which was a very tedious process how do we make that much simpler um, on, on my side of things I focused more on business systems so uh, kind of business intelligence um, data application so uh you know in the early days um, companies were very good at gathering data but then they had this mountain of data like what do we do with it how do we make sense out of it and so you know our our job was you know know, um, there are software companies that were good at like mining the data but their interface for interacting with it was not very useful or or very user friendly and so we would come in to help kind of build a layer of uh, user interface on top of it that made it really easy um, and really more interactive because in the early days of the web, it, it was just kind of like single input, output, and then you started to be able to do drag and drop stuff, and then you started getting animation and all those things that are there today were, we're you know we're taking for granted today they weren't there, and so we were um, the early uh, cutting edge of that and trying to help apply how we can change the the, the interactions and the, the interfaces and the visualizations that people could get. Um, and make more sense of the data that they were, uh, that they had.
1: Yeah. Your, your intellect, your education, your interest, uh, were, were timed perfectly, uh, for the internet age. It sounds like.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think it all came together and I, you know, um, I think a lot can be said for kids that grew up in, in our, our era, because they're, they were surrounded by technology. Right. I think it was really the first generation that was this, that was, Second nature to them because they grew up with it, um, you know. Versus other generations who didn't, and so they struggled to learn how to program CR,
1: right? So well, hey, hey Tony, th- there are people <laughs> our that uh, avoided technology as much as <laughs> they weren't surrounded by it by choice. So, at what point did you you became an entrepreneur at a point after you consulted, right? How old were you when you had your business idea and mm-hmm. desire to start your own thing
0: um so I, I didn't i didn't actually start my own own thing because it kind of um um you know it just kind of came about naturally in progress of my career so i i kind of moved companies um and i ended up at this this new company that was really trying to marry together um kind of the user experience design side with the customer strategy side with technology and so that was something that was very unique at the time because uh, at that time uh, all those disciplines were being the different companies and then these different companies would have to try to communicate each other to achieve the, the single goal for the cutter right um, so this this company that I joined um, basically brought that all together under one one umbrella um, so it was great because formed uh, in 2000, which was the height of the internet bubble. So at the time, if you remember, everyone was trying to create capital in the stock market. So it was just stock options being given out to all these companies and all these startups. And then, of course, the you know that's when the dot-com bubble kind of burst, right? So the company I was at kind of shrunk a lot, shrunk a lot. And eventually, um, our our three big uh, corporate investors, uh, two of our partners at at the company decided to try to buy them out. And I was in a position where um, I had one of our biggest accounts. And so they approached me and said, Hey, we're planning on buying out um, our our founders, and we want you to stay and we want to offer you, you know, um, um, you know, uh, partnership in, in this company. And so it was really those two guys that, that were the entrepreneurs um, and they saw me as someone that was uh, successful at the company and wanted to kind of bring into that, that group. And so very appreciative uh, of what two guys doing that. And uh, that's kind of how I got uh, how I got my start. But um, from your perspective, it was great because now not only had I gotten to the point where I was managing large projects and programs, but now I also had had a little bit of insight and uh, opportunity to collaborate and run this, this kind of company, right, and how to grow it. So
1: Were you effectively a, leading the day-to-day for the company? Was I one? Were you leading the day-to-day for the company? I was. I, it, you could definitely call me like an operations
0: guy. Um, I wasn't like chief strategy or marketing or chief executive. Like that, but I was definitely kind of operations, kind of uh running our programs and keeping our clients happy and making sure our teams had what they need uh recruiting the people and, and that sort of thing
1: and was but, the goal um, was the goal from the beginning to eventually sell it to somebody else uh
0: i i don't know that that was uh, in the game plan or like i i think we wanted to uh have more control over our destiny as a company um and, and and really have the freedom to kind of make the decision we wanted to make uh, and then i think eventually uh you know i think uh, the partners and the firm with the value we were creating um uh, in the industry as we, we were really one of the first like um digital agencies that, that formed um out of that that era and um you know it, it got to the point where the the larger um you know ad agencies marketing agencies were starting to gobble up like these digital companies and so i I think we started to realize that hey maybe we might might be a target for uh, for someone to acquire
1: and and once again your timing was impeccable you're at the right place at the right time
0: yeah yeah um and you know I, i i tell my my friends always tell me like um hey you know Um, that that was great and stuff like that but I also have to recognize that you know I was pretty fortunate to be in the right place at the right time Um, but what what I've kind of finally realized is that you really create your own luck Mm. Um, so I you know definitely part of it was good fortune but at the same time I worked really hard and I've tried to put myself in the right positions and so that increased my probability of getting luck if you know what i mean and so that's actually one one thing i tell junior people um that, that i've mentored uh, through the years is that, you know good fortune is one thing but you you have like, the opportunity to create that good fortune
1: yeah the, the 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 person who uh has a new job every four to six months is probably not going to find themselves with with good fortune typically right right and uh, you know i i um I think the other thing that's key is this you surround yourself with
0: good people. And uh, you know, this, this company I was at for uh, almost 20 years, is just like, I've got so many friends from that company. They're just really good people and we, we enjoyed each other. And so it's almost like a family environment where you go to, you got to fight for each other, right. When you go to a client and, and try to solve this problem for them. Um, So it just makes it more, um, it, it makes it easier to kind of work that way uh, when you have good people with you um, that you can trust and collaborate with and, and you kind of want to go to bat for them too
1: you know yeah no that's that's a, sounds like a great environment and a great culture uh, And when somebody did eventually buy your company right? Uh, they did yeah um, They bought us in 2012.
0: So essentially six years after we, uh, you know, two,
1: two partners had um, bought out the founders of the original company. And uh, you were telling me before we recorded that uh, you were ready to, to, to move on to the next chapter in your life, and, and they said, not so fast.
0: Uh, yeah, so they um, so they basically gave us an incentive, um, as, as most companies do when they acquire somebody to kind of stay on for X number of years. So there was a five-year period where We had some incentives to stay on and continue to run the business, um, which, you know, which is a a smart way of doing things because you're transitioning to, you know, this new culture. But then you also have you keep the expertise in place to help continue to run the business
1: and grow it. So it's kind of a a soft transition, if you will. Um, And you effectively retired in 2017. Is that right?
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, early 2018. Um, it, it took me a while to finally decide to do it. It's something I've always wanted to do, um, and that's why I worked so hard uh, in, in the early years here, is to be able to be in that position to um, to retire. Um, but when it finally the opportunity finally presented itself, I, I had two things go through my head. One, I'm very rich, so if someone told me I needed a nest egg of this size to retire, I wanted a nest egg like two or three times, just that more of a cushion, right? In case of astrophy. Um But then the, the second was, you know, I, I really loved the people I worked with. Um, and I just wanted to kind of make sure, hey, are they in a good spot before I leave? And uh, I think that's what took me a year to kind of suddenly get comfortable with. And I, I think what finally did it for me was I realized I was being vain. Um, I was, I was thinking to myself that these people needed me on to make sure they're okay. And then I realized, you know, if people are, are awesome. You hired awesome people. They'll be fine without you. They'll probably don't need you. And so that, that was kind of the final thing that finally made me realize, you know what, it's, it's time to go. And, and people, you know, I, I definitely miss them. They, they miss me because it's just,
1: you,
0: you don't realize how much time you spend with these people, uh, outside of your family. But, um, and so it's, uh, they, they become like your, your second family. So it's definitely hard to leave. Uh, but the good news is with technology nowadays, we all stay in touch. Um, and because I'm retired, I can travel. And they're all over the country, all over the world. And I, I go and visit as much as
1: I can. So we still stay in touch. So, Tony, do you know anybody else who had to flee uh, their home country as a child, had their family broken up into three different units, then have them come back together, and then you were able to retire comfortably or safely before you turned fifty. Anybody else like that that you know? Uh, no, no.
0: Um, and it's it's actually kind of amazing when. Uh, and it, again, I I have to give credit uh, to my parents because it's it's really a testament to their 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 perseverance and how how they raised us. Because when I look at all oh, my other siblings, they're all fairly successful too. You know. Um, some some of them have had their own businesses. Um, all of them are retired now, except my my one sister and my little brother. <laughs> so um, it, you know it's uh, when I look around and about how successful uh, we all are, it's really because of what our parents sacrificed and and, and and went through to kind of make sure we had the opportunity to do that. Um, it, it, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, too, I uh, one thing I want to mention is another one of your guests, uh, John Dow. Um, I listened to his podcast before I you know, um, I talked to you, and I was just, I mean, his, his story is incredible. But uh, one of the things that really sh- uh, struck with me was when he said that making it to America is really half of your success already. Because uh, I think people here don't realize the opportunities and the resources they have, uh, like John said, right? Um Because you could work hard in other countries and not make it far because you just don't have those opportunities. So um, it's something I tell the kids in our family, like, hey, here's an opportunity in front of us. And I try to remind them of our family history to to give them some sort of contact. Hey, you you know, we were lucky to have these opportunities and this is what we did. So now you have those opportunities. Um, Try to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, I've told a a few people that I was talking to you tonight and uh, I I gave them the high level story as I understood it. And I said, yeah, if you were born in America and your parents were raising you with a good value set and you financially were were middle of the road, you you shouldn't have any bad days and you certainly shouldn't have any bad uh, months. Um, And if you're having trouble, you need to look in the mirror. And, and realize that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of resources around you for you to uh succeed So, stop complaining stop um uh, saying woe is me and, and and get after it and imagine if, if you or or john or, or your family members thought the way that uh some americans who take what we have here for granted imagine yeah okay.
0: yeah yeah and uh you know, I, I don't want to disparage anybody because it's it's quite natural, right, because once once you're in an environment where things are so readily available, you kind of take for granted. Um, and it's really, you know, this is why I encourage people, especially uh, to take their kids and travel the world, um, because to kind of see how other people live is really eye-opening, um, you know, and, and, and then coming back and realizing, oh, we have air conditioning, <laughs> like, um, there's still a lot of people in Europe that don't have air conditioning. You know, it just, um, it, it, it just seems like very, um, it, you know, it's like turning on the water, um, you know, and having water readily available or driving down to the store and having food and anything you want readily available. So it's, it's one of those things that, that definitely, I think traveling is, is a huge uh, um, learning experience for, for, for people, especially
1: kids. And I, I highly encourage that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic advice. This next question may hurt your head a little bit. Um, have you ever given any thought to, uh, what you would be doing, what your life would have been like if South Viet- Vietnam remained intact, the North never attacked the South and, and your family never had to flee South Vietnam? Any um, sense of where you'd be now? Yeah, I, I'm actually a, a fairly pensive
0: person. And so I, I think a lot. And uh, that's, that's actually a question I thought about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and definitely when I went back in 2007, it was just like, um, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of survivor's guilt. Mm, sure. But it, uh, so, you know, going back there and kind of looking at the poverty that's still in that country and, and just kind of feeling guilty, like, OK, well, why why did I make it? and not not someone else um but but I, I do think about like okay well what what if we didn't come over or what if the, the, the south didn't fall to, to the north um and i i i, I kind of going back and forth on the answer but i think in general you know i probably wouldn't be as um maybe successful business-wise opportunities aren't there but i think given my, my, my fantasy, what my father had to do, you know, starting from nothing and becoming a successful uh, business owner, I think I would have followed in that vein and would have been successful, you know, by the standards of, you know, of where we lived. Um, and sometimes I kind of think, too, that maybe my life would have been simpler. <laughs> there's a lot that gets thrown at you here in the U.S. There's so much going on. And especially when I was working, there were so many so many questions, so many things to think about, um, and, and then you start to realize, well, is my life better uh, just being more more simple uh, with, with perhaps less money and less success? You know, I, I kind of think about that too. So I, I think to answer your question, I think it's, I found some way to be successful because of, of my family and, and the example they've set. Um, and I think I would've probably had a much simpler life. Um, so.
1: Yeah, I, there are a lot of uh, things you can think about that. If they were simpler, they they would probably be more enjoyable, and you'd find more contentment.
0: Yeah, yeah, but uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I definitely like where where I'm at now. Um, you know, and the things I have and the things I can enjoy. So, um, but you know, had had things not worked out the way they were, I wouldn't have been aware of those as possibilities, perhaps. Right? So I wouldn't no. miss them.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Uh, have you been back since '07 to Vietnam? Uh, I,
0: I have not. Um, I've, I've thought about doing it. Uh, I have friends who want want to want me to take them back, um, you know, to show them around. Uh, and it's just not something that's kind of um, come up on the on the agenda yet. But it's definitely definitely on there. There's other parts of the Asia I will visit, and so it's one of those like you know make a make it
1: a part of the bigger trip. All right. So since you uh, retired how have you been spending your time uh
0: mostly doing a lot of the things i've always wanted to do so traveling was a part of it um and i've i've definitely wanted to um uh do more of the things that i want to do creatively like write and play music um and so uh i started taking a lot of classes um you know, th- things I, I just never found time to do. Before. So I, I try to write a little bit more. I took a lot of guitar classes to get better at guitar. Uh, I took a lot of language classes because I was traveling much and I wanted to learn languages. So, I, I, you know, I took some Spanish, which I already uh, But then I started learning Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Um, I took swimming lessons because I never learned how to swim. <laughs> going, going on vacation and going to these spots where there's water. It was just like, I never got in the water. So I started taking swimming lessons. Um, so it's just really, I'm, I'm just really trying to be active. And I, I think the, the other big thing when I retired was I was, uh, I guess you'd call me overweight when I was working. Um, Cause I didn't, I ate poorly, went out to, you know, entertain clients, that involved drinking and eating and not getting time to exercise. So I had, um, you know, blood pressure type 2 diabetes high cholesterol and so one of the things i did when i first retired was i started working out i hired a trainer hired a nutritionist i ended up losing 30 pounds um, i'm no longer diabetic uh, my blood pressure is under control my cholesterol under control and i just generally feel better and you know i look better so that that i think was the, the big one um, in retirement because. Um, I didn't want to be one of those people who retired and just had suddenly had a heart attack a year or two in retirement. Um, yeah. even though, even though I was young, right. I, I wanted to get ahead of that. I wanted to, uh, be able to be healthy, to enjoy my life and do the things I want to do. Uh,
1: that's great advice for anybody retiring at any age. Uh, and it's advice for <laughs> people pre, pre-retirement as well. Yeah. You, yeah. You, the, the thing, go ahead. yeah. The
0: thing I would say about that is it's, it's hard, um, in the sense that, uh it doesn't happen overnight um and and the thing that that kind of uh made me feel a little better about it is like it took decades to get to the point where i was that unhealthy it wasn't going to happen overnight to suddenly be healthy again so i was trying to show that patience but then it's really the consistency like showing up every day and doing something if it's going for a walk if you can't make it to the gym going for a walk or doing something as long as you're consistent that all
1: adds up over time that's great advice all right so when you and i had chatted before uh, i guess it's been a couple weeks now uh, maybe maybe three weeks you were in barcelona when we spoke and you were looking for a place because you're going to spend part of your time uh, in the states namely chicago area uh, and then part of the time in, in barcelona what time of year would you stay in barcelona
0: um, that, that was something I was trying to figure out, uh, cause I've generally only been there in like the late spring and summer. Um, so this time I can kind of went a little earlier in the spring. Um, and I, I, have yet to be there in the fall or, or the winter. Um, their, their winters are super mild compared to Chicago. Um, and that might get down to like 40s at night. That's about it. And it rains a little bit more. Um, but I'm thinking, um, I will probably be in Barcelona and, uh, the summers get really hot there to get overcrowded with with toro and you know i'm thinking kind of like april may june and then spend the summers in chicago and then go back to barcelona and, all of them. and then the winter here obviously with the big holidays like Thanksgiving, christmas is big family time so i kind of need to be around here for that uh so that's my current plan but you know i um one thing i've learned in in retirement is just like you use the flow like you know, things things happen, things change, and um, um, but I am very happy with uh, my experience uh, the last three months as kind of a trial test of splitting my time. So that definitely, so my decision that you know this is what I'm going to do. Um, you know, Barcelona and Chicago are two good hubs to do
1: traveling elsewhere, uh, in in the region. So um, that's, that's what I plan on doing too. So you've given me a a bit of an understanding why Barcelona, so traveling to other parts uh, made it a bit easier with a a major city like that, at least in Spain's terms or uh, Spanish standards. Uh, What else is about Barcelona that gravitated you to it?
0: Well, really, originally it's Spain in general. Um, So one of the the first international trips I took with my friend in our mid-20s was to Spain, and it was just you know, imagine being a kid uh, in your mid 20s, it's like landing in this country where everyone just instead of living to work, you know, they work to live. And so they're, they're just out enjoying life and the whole vibe and energy was just like, hey, man, we're, we're just enjoying life. Uh, you know, food's great. People are great. Weather is great. Um, and then uh, Barcelona is awesome in the sense that there's so much history there. Um, there's, you know, uh, it was originally uh, a Roman settlement, you know, and so there's a lot of history there, uh, a lot of culture. Um, The architecture now is amazing. Um, And it's, it's a very uh, international city. There's a lot of expats there, but a lot of tourists. So you've got a lot of international people Uh, and then you've got the Spanish people. And so um, it's become a great city for food as well. uh, And nightlife, um, I was I was just telling a friend today like one of the amazing things is it's just like it's so safe there too. Um, I would be walking home at three in the morning by myself and just be perfectly fine. You know, there'd be other people out and about at three in the morning, um, and that's just something I I don't think I would be doing too much of in Chicago <laughs> yeah. um, at, at that that time of day. So, uh, but yeah, I uh, I've I've definitely been able to. It's easy to make friends there. Um, it's easy to find stuff to do for fun. Um, uh, and and one of the things I really appreciate about kind of European culture versus American culture is there's still a lot of like mom and pop shops in the sense that within walking distance of my apartment, if I felt like getting a loaf of bread, I could walk down to the bakery. If I wanted to cook cake, I could walk down to the butcher. There's a fish shop. There's restaurants and bars. And. Uh here in the US it's generally you go to one one store once a week and buy everything you need because there's no local baker and there's no lovature. It's just like it's it's just so much easier to decide and not waste food, you know, because if you buy Mm. something once a week, you might not eat everything, but you could walk home from one day and be
1: like, Oh, I feel like a sandwich. So you go to the the bakery, buy a loaf of bread. You know, it's it's that easy. Yeah, back to that notion of being simpler. Um, Yeah. And yeah, and not being wasteful and 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 being efficient. Yeah, yeah. By the way, you sold me on Barcelona. I I definitely at least have to visit. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, it's on my bucket list now. I'm still house hunting, but once I have a place, you're you're more than welcome. You and
0: you and Mike uh, Dimaggio.
1: We'll <laughs> we'll get Mike uh, off off the of Miller light by then, hopefully. All right. So, Tony, uh, typically one of the last questions I ask is is, uh, an oddball question because it's not like anything else we've talked about. Uh, And so imagine you're a talk show host. It can be a daytime talk show, a nighttime talk show. You're going to have one show, one show only. Uh, It it lasts as long as it needs to last. So you're not time bound Uh, and you can have uh, a male guest, a female guest and a musical act. Uh, and if you're in a stand-up comedy, you can you can add a comedian if you want, not a requirement. But the musical groups are a requirement, and the male and female guests are requirements. They can be famous people. They can be uh, people that you know personally and not famous. They can be alive or dead. Uh, who would you have on your talk show? Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh,
0: well, I can tell you the musical guest already. That would have to be Prince. Uh, my my one good friend and I are really huge Prince fans. Um, you know that being being a guitar player like just uh prince is such an amaz- amazing artist and he's as good as he is on the guitar i think he's still very underrated like people generally don't think of him as like one of the best guitar players um but but he definitely is um, so him for sure is a musical guest um, a comedian um i'd have to put Chappelle on there man <laughs> I love De Chappelle. I know he's a little controversial right now. Um, but, um, you, you know, um, his comedy is just, yeah, it's just top notch. Uh, let's see, male guest. Um, hmm. I don't know. I, um, I want to say like Keanu Reeves or someone like that. Cause he just seems like such a cool guy, like a nice guy down to earth. Like I, I, I would love to like have a, have a beer with that guy. Uh, and as far as female guests, that's a tough one. I
1: don't, I haven't really thought about that one. <laughs> oh, Regardless of who you pick for your female uh, guest, I I'm definitely checking your show out. Given what you said, while you're thinking about your female guest, Prince, not only is underrated as a guitarist, he he played, he ended up playing and and virtually mastering most of uh, this number, like over twenty instruments. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. He he was yeah, he was insane. Um, if you watch some of the documentary, like he will actually go out there and play all the instruments, or he'll show his band how to play something. Um, <laughs> yeah he, he was just incredible if you ever watch any youtube of him playing the bass the bass guitar like it's just insane what he can do with that too um but yeah he was just yeah that guy that guy was genius. definitely a genius um sorry man i'm a I'm blank a female guest <laughs> i'm trying to think about all the supermodel crush on as a teenager um you know i probably uh I've, I've actually been following, uh, if you remember being in Portscova.
1: Oh man. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So she's on Instagram
0: and, um, and I, I kind of like her, her, her platform right now is she's kind of embracing her age Mm. and so she's sending out some positive vibes about like, Hey, don't, don't hide your aging or, you know, try to cover it up, just like embrace it. And that's a, that's a very positive message.
1: Um, That's a great, great message. Um, yeah. She's, she's a powerful person, uh, in general yeah. and, and, yeah. and still quite attractive. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, Tony, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, your story is incredible. Um, I, I hope you do as much interviewing of, of your family, especially of your mom as you can. And, uh, if nothing else, it becomes powerful for future generations, but I, I, you're sitting on a movie.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I don't want to write a book about it. Um,
1: and, and, you know, if you
0: admit, I'll tell you this. Like when I was in college, uh, my father passed away the summer between my junior year and college. And so uh, senior year, I decided I, I finished all of my um, requirements. And so I decided to take a writing class because I always wanted to be a writer. And so we wrote some stories class and I actually wrote a short story about my experience watching my dad go through cancer and then eventually succumbing to cancer um, during that summer. And it was, it was a bit of an outlet for me. Uh, But I wrote the story and I read it in class. And at the end of class, you know, after reading it, I looked up and the entire class was just in tears.
1: Mm. And
0: um, afterwards my teacher told me, you know, this, this is a novel and you know, this, Uh, I'm a little disappointed in myself in that I agreed with him, and then it's just over the years I've just kind of like put it to the side because I wanted to work and make money and try to retire early and now that I'm retired I want to get back to the story and it's I've thought about all the things I could put around it because the story is really about uh, not just my dad but my family you know the the history of Vietnam and the war and like um, it's something I, I is one of my goals is to try to Try to write this into a story that covers all of our our family story in it as well well so, i don't know may, maybe one day i'll be back on the show to, to, to you know promote the book
1: for, for, for whatever it's worth you have uh one and i imagine rob who is uh taking notes uh we both support you in that endeavor excellent excellent
0: well uh yeah so thanks for having me. it was, it was a lot of fun um and i'll, I'll have to go you know by buy mike a beer for introducing us but uh <laughs> yeah anytime you're in chicago let us know
1: no, I, I will. I, it's funny. I was trying to get my family to go to Chicago this summer because uh, we've never, I, I've never really spent any quality time in Chicago. Uh, every time I see Mike is at a family wedding. And yeah, uh, yeah I I think maybe next summer is when we, we finally make it to Chicago. Yeah, I, I think exactly. we'll make yeah. uh, Mike happy. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, definitely
0: fun. So, so definitely do it. Awesome.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really
0: appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.